Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young-Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. Projection and projective identification. What do they mean? Why are even simple topics often difficult to discuss, especially if people have different viewpoints? Underlying many confusions and animosities in human interactions in couples and groups is a form of unconscious emotional communication that implies and evokes strong reactions in ways that usually fall outside our awareness. We suddenly feel triggered, trapped, or kidnapped into an emotional reality that we had not intended. This kind of communication may be positive or idealized as when we fall in love. More often, though, it is negative and agitating as when we feel we must protect ourselves by insisting on the faults of others, either someone we know or a stranger who carries an emotional meaning for us. Unconscious communication occurs primarily through facial expression, gesture, implication, and vocal tone and rhythm, more than words. In psychoanalysis, there is a name for this kind of powerful emotional communication. It's called projection and projective identification. In this episode, we'll talk about how this kind of communication works in our private and public worlds and what we can do to sort out our meanings. So, hi. Hi there. Today we're going to have a couple of things that are a little different for this podcast. One, then maybe the most important, is that we're taking a deep dive into the psychoanalytic world, where typically we touch on some topics that are psychoanalytic, and then we dive into other worlds. Today we're going to stay with this idea or these ideas of projection and projective identification to talk about how they affect our communication, particularly our communication when we're emotionally reactive. And in doing that, we're going to have to sort through some of the history of these ideas in psychoanalysis. And so we have an expert with us today, Robert Caper, who's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst, and has written a number of books on this subject of projection and projective identification. And I, I think the earliest one is, is your book called Immaterial Facts. Is that right, Robert? That's right. And could you just uh, tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do in that book and, and when it came out, and then we can come up to the present. 
Well, I'll, I'll try to give you the short version. At the time I wrote that book, which was in the, the early 80s, the ideas of a British psychoanalyst named Melanie Klein were just being introduced to America. And she was actually the one who coined the term projective identification. She was the first one to explore what it meant. Uh, in any event, for reasons that I, I won't go into, the reaction of American psychoanalysts to Klein's ideas was, to put it mildly, not receptive. And this played itself out in psychoanalytic training programs where there was a kind of a political battle going on about whether or not her ideas should be taught even in the U.S. And I got caught in that because uh, this occurred in a period of time when, when I was in training. And it seemed to me to be a sort of much ado about nothing that it wasn't uh, the ideas of Freud, which the Americans were championing in contrast to the ideas of Klein, because I thought Klein's ideas were actually a very logical evolution of Freud's ideas. And that you really, if, you, if you really accept what Freud was saying, you, Klein is not uh, that alien. And so I wrote the book, which is in two parts. The first part is about Freud's development as a psychoanalyst, and the second part is about Klein's development and showing how the second arises from the first. So one I was, reason... I, I was trying to let everybody... I was like Rodney King saying, can't we all get along? Well, I found out why. Well, you know, I would like to come back to the possibility that projective identification was going on in those conversations. But before we do that, that's kind of, again, really diving in. I, I would like to talk a little bit about these terms, projection and projective identification. And also, to be clear, my original training in psychoanalysis is as a, a Jungian psychoanalyst, and later I did training in object relations. And so this term, projective identification, was introduced by Jung within a much less, let's say, precise way uh, than Melanie Klein, and he took the term from Lévi-Strauss, a French sociologist, participation mystique, which was meant to name the kind of mixing up of unconscious communications, particularly in people who were at the time so-called primitives, people who weren't Europeans, who didn't have the abstract background that Europeans had. And Levi-Strauss came up with this idea that when people are doing ceremonies, rituals together, when they're dancing, when they're involved in a way that is not so conscious, they participate in the unconscious dynamics of each other and create a kind of back and forth that's very quick between them uh, and outside of their awareness. So Jung incorporated that idea, and he was trying, I believe, to get at some of the same things that Melanie Klein was trying to get at. And later, you know, I basically decided that Melanie Klein's way of approaching it was more precise, and I began to incorporate her language. But side by side with Jung's idea that we communicate unconsciously all the time, outside of any kind of awareness that we have about what's going on, and so, consequently, when we're speaking in words, we may feel that we've expressed something clearly 
or that we've said something simply and that the other person just isn't getting it, but actually we may be evoking something from the other person that they are getting and that they're responding to instead of the words. And so I'd like to go back then to Robert, to your understand and Jill just jump in at any time you have sure. a question or sure. whatever to your understanding of how the how the term got going let's start with projection then projective identification uh, from there and you can you know go back to to Freud's ideas and then bring us up to date with Klein I, I just want to note that in many podcasts we've used Klein's ideas and when you and I did the, the podcast recently on hostile dependency, we talked about Klein's theory of yes. envy, envy and gratitude. Okay, so so just uh, to give us a, a, a picture of the ideas evolving from Freud, projection, projective identification into Klein. Okay, well, I'll, I'll do it the other way around if that's okay. I'll start with projective identification and, and then go back to projection and identification. Because, Polly, we were talking about, about this before this podcast and you were commenting on the fact that projective identification is a very awkward term and people aren't comfortable with it and why is it such a complicated term and the reason is it has a history and start with identification which was an idea that Freud uh, developed and it's pretty commonly understood that if you identify with somebody it means you're, you're, you're becoming like them, you want to be like them, you try to be like them, you do end up in many ways being like them and when we see that we say oh so-and-so is identified with this other person. But it may be unconscious, it may not be that you want to be like them but you become like them all the same. Right. Real identification what I would call real identification, is actually uh, almost always unconscious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why, why projective identification? Well, to begin with, Freud's idea of identification was the only kind of identification that was understood. And when Klein came along, she recognized that there was a different kind of identification that wasn't like Freud's idea. It was similar, but uh, not, not exactly like Freud's idea. And so Freud's original concept got renamed introjective identification, which is technically how it's known today uh, in Kleinian circles. And introjective means you take someone inside you. So you, you find someone you're identifying with, you take them unconsciously inside you, and so you become like them as a result of uh, basically taking something inside you. Klein said, yes, that's, that's true, but there's another kind of identification alongside that in which projection plays a big role. And in projection, in a way, it's the opposite of introjective identification because you're taking something in yourself and you're putting it into another person. So you're identifying them with a part of yourself rather than identifying yourself with, uh, with something of them. Projection is also a concept that Freud was, was aware of and, and explored, uh, although he originally understood it as not leading to any kind of identification. I think that was a, an early or incomplete understanding of projection, and, and now, nowadays, we would say that projection is always projective identification. Robert, would it be fair to ask for 
a simple example of say introjective identification and projective identification just to concretize the concepts a little bit for people who are unfamiliar with the broader meaning well i have one really good example that many people know about the guy that killed john lennon was introjectively identified with john lennon i can't remember the guy's name but he made very public statements about how he and John Lennon could not both exist because he felt he was John Lennon and only one of them could exist. And so either he was going to have to kill John Lennon or John Lennon was going to have to kill him. Now, that was a very extreme, very psychotic kind of identification, but it was publicly known and, uh, you know, I think it's a good example of, of an introjective. There was projective in there, too. But, you know, right. in, a, in a simple way, you can become like your angry father when you absolutely dislike your angry, angry father, right? I mean, you can become quite a lot like a person that you disidentify with consciously. Absolutely. And, um, and so then projective identification, can you take it one step further? So you may interject something and become it, but... Well, uh, introjective identification covers a, a, a wide range of phenomena. For example, it could be, at, at one end, an aspiration. So if we, if we love and admire Martin Luther King, we want to be like that. You know, we can't be like that, but we, we try. Uh, so that's an aspiration, and, and that leads to a kind of identification. Other extreme would be, say, you know, somebody who says, I'm a stable genius. It reminds me of the old joke, the old Jewish joke, that these two guys are talking, and one guy tells the other, his friend, that he's a genius, and his friend says, well, okay, by you, you're a genius, and by me, you're a genius, but by a genius, are you a genius? <laughs> So uh, the, the, the other end is, is, is really delusional almost. Uh, you, you, you become something, uh, you, you believe you are something in a, in a delusional way. So identification covers a, a broad spectrum. So, you and know, I, I think can, I forgot the rest, well, the rest of the projective <laughs> identification, but let's just stick with identification for a moment because, again, I think people, ordinary people, really do understand this in their experience, but they don't have the term. And of course, like you said, you can identify with somebody consciously. You can say, you know, Martin Luther King is my ideal, and so I'm going to talk like him, develop his style, walk like him, whatever. And that can be a conscious kind of decision where you set up what some people call an ego ideal, where you become like somebody. On the other hand, and I think more often between couples in a relationship or people in a group, you can actually take on aspects of the other person's, let's say, internal life without knowing it. Now, that can be, again, simply like uh, an, if, an infection, like somebody who's very anxious who's partnered with somebody else who might be sensitive but not anxious, can become that other person can become very anxious in kind of identifying with the anxiety of the first person's. 
you know. And so the some of our psychological states that are not very conscious go back and forth between people, and people may or may not be aware even. Uh, since we're only about 5% aware, we're like 95% not aware, and we know that from all sorts of research on working memory, we can be walking around and doing things that we're simply not aware of. So I think on the identification side, you can be infected by somebody else's processes, unconscious processes, and perhaps the guy that, that killed John Lennon had that kind of relationship to something about John Lennon. It wasn't just that he admired him. It was like he became him, and that was psychotic. Um, the, is there more on the identification side that you'd want to point out before we go to the projective identification side? Well, I'm going to, you know, t- take what is probably a fairly radical position about identification. This is, this is my position. But I think identification is complex, and some of what is called identification is really defensive. Mm-hmm. For example, if you, uh, you know, start sounding like Martin Luther King and you start, you know, looking like Martin Luther King and, and, and saying the kinds of things that Martin Luther King uh, say, that's a, a defensive identification, I think. And it, it, it sounds phony, it looks phony, and it's not, it's not hard to see through. It's very different from actually being like Martin Luther King, which involves doing a lot of hard psychological work and developing the kind of tolerance for abuse and tolerance for violence and ability to contain it and to and to react nonviolently to violence that's a very diff, a very different thing than sounding like him and, and talking like him which is easy to do so that that latter part i would call psychological development to, to, you know, to do what he did, to go through the kind of development he had to go through as a person uh, to, to get to where he got. So that's a positive aspect of identification. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's non-defensive. Yeah. The, the, the other kind of identification is a defense against having to know that you're not this person you admire. <laughs> But mm-hmm. that they're mm-hmm. up there and you're not. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in extreme forms, people, many people have heard about psychotic people thinking they're Jesus Christ. And, you know, I once was talking to a psychiatrist who was working with a young man who thought he was Jesus. And once he was medicated, he said it was both a relief and a disappointment to find out that he wasn't Jesus. Which you can see, you know, I mean, if you're if you identify with something that is grandiose and beyond you, if you're truly identified with it, it creates anxiety. And when you find out you're not that, there's a relief of that anxiety. At the same time, there's a disappointment because you thought you were quite important and you're not as important as you might have imagined. So I, I think, again, that there's a range there and some of it's healthy and sometimes The psychoanalysts that are called self-psychologists talk about having an ego ideal or something or someone to identify with that's reachable, that's not unreachable, and that that gives you a lot of psychological health. If you have a parent, for example, that you can identify with and who seems to be admirable, you can take that in in a way that's, that's healthy. 
So, so if I'm understanding correctly, then the process of identification, when it's used um, or when it inspires aspiration and development and work, for example, I don't think I'm Jesus Christ, but I hold Jesus Christ as, as a model mm-hmm. and not even necessarily an idealized model, just as a model of of how to live and how to be in the world. And I do the internal and external work to be more like Jesus Christ mm-hmm. or how I perceive Jesus Christ in the world. That is a positive outcome of identification. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in Buddhism, since our podcast really does, you know, bring Buddhist perspectives in, there is a lot of Buddhism that is motivating people to identify with idealized figures. Uh, For example, with bodhisattvas or with particular Buddhist saints or or the Buddha. Again, there may not be a recognition that that's a powerful movement for an individual and that it needs to be modulated by a person's real capacities, Mm. you know, just like we're talking about. It's got to be some kind of reachable ideal in which you internalize it, but you don't make a mistake about thinking that you are exactly this. Or even that you're supposed to be. Or that you're supposed to be. So, you know, again, we're, we're kind of tossing around the identification part. It's complex enough. But I'd like to get to the projection part because this is the part that often leads to hostilities. And since the podcast is about hostility in human relationships and human groups, we want to come around to the topic of, um, of the, the hostile, unconscious aspects of projective identification. So I wonder, Robert, if you could start with projection and, you know, the sort of Freudian view and then the Kleinian view. Or if you don't want to do it that way, you can just go to projective identification. No, that's good. I'll start with projection. Freud's idea of projection was a kind of evacuation. That uh, you, you take something that's in you, and this is all unconscious again. You take something that's in you, uh, you don't want it or you don't like it or you don't feel it should be there or something like that. And you just attribute it to another person by evacuating it. In other words, it's not only that you see the other person that way, you see yourself as not that way now. And that's the, that's the point. And, and a and, really easy example for couples often is aggression, that one person sees the other person as the aggressive person and and not oneself. Right, right, right. No. So it's the, the projection is sort of like using a garbage disposal or a toilet. It's gone, and you, you flush it, and it's gone. And that was Freud's idea. But the problem with projection is that it, it doesn't really work that way. The toilet backs up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In therapy, a lot of people have dreams of the toilet backing up. Right. That's yeah. a very common dream, particularly at the beginning of therapy. Huh. Yeah. So that what you do to the person you've projected whatever it is into comes back from them back to you and projective identification is simply a sort of formalized recognition of that fact that what you what you put out mm-hmm. as a projection as what freud would have called a projection doesn't stay out it comes back so that you know someone for example who who projects hostility or who who projects 
sneakiness. You know, they don't want to be sneaky or they don't want to be hostile. They project it into somebody else. It goes into the FBI and then they feel the FBI is sneakily spying on them or is hostile toward them or it goes into the deep state or something like that. So there's this, there's this apparatus and, and what results is a paranoid state. So that massive projection comes back, you know, it's not that you've gotten rid of these kind of spying, sneaky, tricky aspects of yourself. You now, you have, because I'm not that way anymore, so-called, but they are, and now I have to deal with it out there, and that's, that's paranoia. Or, so, I'm not that way anymore, or another way of putting that is, I'm not identifying those things in myself anymore. Right, right. And so what I think you're bringing out that in an ordinary kind of couple situation or a group uh, very often results in when you project your disavowed aspects, which could be on one hand ideals that are disavowed in you, things that you don't actually want to work on, and so you'd rather have somebody else take responsibility for them, when you project those, uh, or when you project your hostilities, often what happens is that you then try to control those things in the other person. So in the case of hostile dependency that we were talking about last time, if you're dependent, if you're an adult child, you're dependent on your parent for your financial needs, you project into your parent that sense that they have so much and they're going to give that to you. And so then you begin to try to control what you've projected. So then you not only get your room and board, but you want to take the car and you want the car insurance and so on. So that the projection comes back in terms of your attempt to control what has been projected And that is often the dynamic that gets people in trouble in groups and couples and families. They project and then that comes back in some way that they try to control. So, you know, a really typical thing with a couple that where the couple has lost their sense of intimacy and trust is that each person in the couple seems to simultaneously believe that the other person intentionally misunderstands the issues that that individual is trying to convey. So it's almost like a hall of mirrors that's a distorted hall of mirrors when the two people start to talk about what it is that's bothering them, why they're in couples therapy. And similarly, you see that in the public domain with what Robert was alluding to, the two political churches that we have now that project back and forth almost the identical material, ideas, and memes. And you see that in couples also that have conflict. So I I think one reason why projective identification is so troubling to human beings is that it is deeply confusing. People feel like the other person or the other group is saying exactly what they're experiencing, but the other group and the other person is actually denying that they're doing anything. 
So, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you want to add to that, but there's a vast confusion that comes out of this. Yeah, I, I, I have two comments. One, I mentioned the deep state before, the, the being spied on and, and having people do sneaky things and so on. There's a, a concept called projecting into reality. It means that when you project, say, uh, a desire to spy or control or invade or intrude upon into somebody else, because you don't want it to be part of yourself, and you feel that they're invading and spying and intruding upon you, it doesn't mean they're not doing it. As a matter of fact, people who are doing it make excellent receptacles for that kind of projection. And if you're smart, you find someone who's a good receptacle, so it looks real. So, as we know, there is a deep state, and they are spying on us, and the CIA and the NSA have been spying on us for years. We now know that. So, you could say, well, then it's not a projection to say that they're spying on us. Well, yes and no. They're a good receptacle because they're really doing it. But you can be aware of that without making a career out of it, without becoming obsessed with, with being spied on and, and so on. It's been happening all of our lives, all of my life anyway. I've probably suffered as a result of it in, in certain ways, which I won't go into, but it's not something that I need to be obsessed with. It's a fact of life. I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles and I look upon it as sort of like, it's like smog. <laughs> okay, it's there, it's in the atmosphere, it's all around you, you can't get away from it. You deal with it, but you don't go around complaining about it all the time or suspecting it or checking your phones or, you know, things like that. So where is the problem in, because I want to understand this more clearly, where is the problem in projecting or projective identification um, into something that is 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 actually happening so objectively there is spying so where where does the line between recognizing that that's happening and having it be a projective identification where is that line and what is the difference brings us to to the point Polly was just making about control Mm -hmm. because I think the essence of projective identification is control Mm And the difference is that if, if the reality is also the target of a projective identification, then one feels a strong need to control the reality. Mm-hmm. And that's where the obsession comes in. You're, you're, you're always looking because you need to, you know, kind of get away from it and, and so on. Um, the, the other point about projective identification is that it is... It, I think the essence of it it's a, is a, it's a form of control, and as you mentioned in your in your introduction, this control is uh, the, the the vehicle uh, by which it is carried out is is communication, and it's primarily the nonverbal, the musical aspects of communication. I think another thing to be uh, important thing to be aware of with projective identification is that it's practically universal. It's mm-hmm. not just mm-hmm. between people who are having problems with each other. It goes on all the time mm-hmm. between everybody in the sense that we have desires mm-hmm. and we have needs and they involve other people mm-hmm. and we want to see those desires and those needs satisfied. And so we subtly try to persuade people to do what we need them to do or what we want them to do. Seduction, for example. Mm-hmm. Seduction occurs in all degrees. You know, there can be heavy seductions, but there can be subtle seductions. Mm-hmm. Salesmanship. 
Uh, you want someone to agree with you, so you present things in a way that you think from your knowledge of them might lean them toward agreeing with you. Mm -hmm. It's practically unavoidable. Mm -hmm. Unless you're going to communicate in a way that is absolutely flat right. and tells, you, tells yeah. uh, the listener nothing mm -hmm. about what you want, mm -hmm. you're, you're engaging in projective identification. Well, I think there's so much confusion about that, and that's why so many, for example podcasters these days and media experts they want to deal with data they want data driven or empirically driven statements because they assume that they're not manipulating those projectively you know but in fact they are and i was just thinking as you were talking robert that i you know i've been working a little bit with a, a coach for speaking for public speaking and she points out that there's you know, just a lot of research that shows that what people pay attention to the most when they're when they're in a situation where they're hearing a public speaker is the is the way that person looks. That is the visual field. And then the next thing, so it's about, I think she said something along the lines of 60-some percent in a just general kind of summarized way of what people remember from a speaker is what they were wearing, how they moved, whether they looked comfortable, and so on. And then the next most important thing is the tone of voice. The least remembered of what is conveyed by a public speaker is what they actually said. And, and that, I think, isn't just for public speaking. I think it's often also when you're speaking to your partner, when you're speaking to your adult child, when you're speaking to your colleague, if you are speaking in a way that is motivated by your desire or by emotional threat, if you're feeling emotionally threatened or you want something very much, I think that what is being conveyed is going to be largely outside of the words you use and what is going to be evoked back that is what the other person's going to experience is what you're saying is also going to be largely outside of the words that they they may even hear words that you didn't say i've seen it many times in couples therapy that when i ask a partner to paraphrase that person has heard very different words than what the person the first person said it even when those words are repeated they can't repeat them because actually that's not what the listener is experiencing. The listener is experiencing this other thing, which almost always involves wanting to control what's going on or how the other person is experiencing. And so that, that whole dimension of, as you said, this uh, sort of what we are trying to evoke from others, how we're driven in what we're trying to evoke, and also then the way others experience us, it has so little to do with the words. I mean, that's the sad, almost tragic thing about these homo sapiens who've developed all this language and these abstract concepts and all this data and so on. Those are the least influential in many communication situations. And so it's, it's almost seems sometimes like it's a hopeless, it's a hopeless kind of goal to try to understand each other. Thanks so much for listening. To continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
Our Patreon page supports real dialogue for opposing sides live events. Please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash real dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.